you know, growing up, I was not uh, one who enjoyed elementary school much. And when summer came, it was such a sense of wonderful freedom and joy, this huge three, back then, a huge three-month expanse of freedom, not having to do anything except maybe play Little League ball. Um, it was it was almost, you know, I wasn't a, didn't grow up in the church and didn't have a, uh, uh, wasn't taught about the Lord then, but I realized now it was really like a taste of heaven with with no conflicts, no problems, no issues, just just freedom and no response, no uh, uh, nothing burdening me as a kid. So we are right at the front end of summer here, what my pal Dave calls the fat part of the summer, right at the right at the front end. So um, just to celebrate that, we're, we're this is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to do a little biblical heavy lifting, just a little bit. And then as a reward, you get a story. So let's, uh, before we dive into the scripture, let's pray. Holy Spirit, it is always your voice that we want to hear. It's always your guidance we want. Holy Spirit, you're the true preacher always. You're the true teacher always. So we welcome you now. You've already been moving among us in our worship and our praise. As we look at this word that you inspired, open our minds, hearts, and spirits to the truth you want us to hear. And we thank you and pray for all, pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the fascinating things about the way Jesus did things is he always used stories when he taught. Parables. Parables are just stories. Uh, we see in uh, uh, Mark 4, near the, uh, around uh, verse 34, it says, his, in his public ministry, he never taught without using parables. Isn't that interesting? He never taught without using stories. Now, we're going to go a little bit to the front of uh, Mark 4. In, both, uh, in Mark 4, it's just filled with parables. And the parallel passage in uh, parable section in Matthew 13, it's even more parables there. But Jesus says something pretty provocative after telling the uh, parable, the story of the farmer scattering, scattering seed. You know, the one he's, the farmer scatters the seed on, on uh, rocky soil, on soil with, uh, with uh, weeds, and on, uh, and on good soil. Uh, but afterwards, he's alone. This is uh, Mark 4.10. He's alone with the 12 disciples and with the others who were gathered around, and they asked him what the parables meant. Now, let's stop there a minute. Uh, we've got to remember, we've got the leadership team, Jesus' leadership team, the 12 disciples, the 12 who ended up being the 12 apostles, but then there are other disciples, other learners, other folks coming alongside, lots of them, and further, further it goes in Jesus' ministry, more and more people are there. So you got the 12 who are the core, but then you've got all these other people. We see this especially when he sends the 12 out on their first preaching ministry on their own, 
and they come back and it's successful. And then pretty soon thereafter, Jesus is sending out 70, right, leaders. To, and so there's all these other folks. So these crowds of folks. And Jesus, they want to know what the parables mean. And he says this. You are permitted to understand the secret of the kingdom of God. But I use parables for everything I say to outsiders. Wait, wait a minute. He's telling them the meaning here, but he's used these parables, he's used these stories that can often be, you know, people are left scratching their head often. Like, what, what's this story mean? And he says he uses this with outsiders. Now tell me something. Can you remember a time in the Gospels when somebody came to follow Jesus and Jesus said, no, you get lost. I don't want you having anything to do with my ministry. I can tell you there isn't. The closest is the rich young ruler where he just puts a condition about what it means to follow him, right? The other one you could argue, the gathering demoniac who's, you know, starts off naked and crazy and filled with demons and then he ends up fully clothed in his right mind and he wants to come with Jesus, and Jesus says, no, you go tell your family what's happened. I argue he's actually the first missionary in some ways. But, you know, when someone wants to come to Jesus, he welcomes them. So who are these outsiders that he's talking about? Are these pagans? The answer is no, because they're in Israel. These are all Jews. Except when, when he's not, when he's going to Samaria, which is sort of quasi, you know, mixed up Jewish folks, or, or he goes to Tyre and Sidon, or he goes outside. The gospel writers tell us that, oh, he's out with the pagans now, right? But these folks he's talking about are Jews. And they're out. He calls them outsiders. Now, what, what makes them outsiders? Well, I, let me just give you a little preview here. The only ones who are outsiders for Jesus are people who put them out, put themselves outside of his circle. But here's what he says. He says, you are permitted to understand, this is Mark 4.11, you are permitted to understand the secret of the kingdom of God, but I use parables for everything to, to outsiders. Now, why? He says, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Huh. He's now going to quote. Now, their scriptures were what we call the Old Testament, right? But that was their scriptures. That's what they had. That was it. That was it at that point. So he says, there are scriptures that must be fulfilled in this situation. Now, why is that? And then he quotes the scripture. And it's, well, I'll read it and you see if it's shocking to you. When they see what I do, the outsiders he's talking about, when they see what who are Jews, by the way, right? When they see what I do, they will learn nothing. When they hear what I say, they will not understand. Otherwise, they will turn to me and be forgiven. I'm going to read that again. Otherwise, 
they will turn to me and be forgiven. Wait a minute. Why did this guy come to the earth? Why did Jesus? We're going to make this the group participation, audience participation portion of the program. Why did Jesus come to the earth? Is that what? Thank you to save the lost. Other people said, you know, to, to forgive sins, to die on the cross, right? So that people could be forgiven. But he's saying right here, otherwise they will turn to me and be forgiven. What in the world is going on? Let me tell you something. Jesus says throughout, throughout his ministry, Jesus had no trouble saying things that were sometimes challenging to understand. Let me, let me tell you this. If we have, if there's a problem us understanding, the problem is not with Jesus. The problem is us digging deeper, right? The problem is on our end. The, the problem is not with the transmitter. The problem is with the receiver. So what is going on here? Well, Jesus has already given us a clue. He quotes this scripture. And almost certainly the people... The disciples here who heard the scripture, they know where he's quoting from. They would know he's quoting from Isaiah the prophet, and specifically Isaiah 6, which is the famous passage you're probably very familiar with, about Isaiah finds himself in God's throne room and he realizes he's sinful and he's he's it's over, he's done, but then he's a coal is put on his lips probably symbolizing cleansing and forgiveness. And then he is, he's called, there's a voice that says, I need someone to go send a message, take a message to Israel. Who's going to do it? Isaiah says, I'll go. And God says, here's the message. And the message, part of it at least, is what Jesus has quoted. This strange thing about when they see what I do, they will learn nothing when they hear what I say, they will not understand. Otherwise, they will turn to me and be forgiven. Same thing that Isaiah was told to tell the people of Israel. Now, why? The people of Judah, why? Judah, the people of Israel, they had become real, 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 real religious. They had this religion thing down. They had all the outward stuff, all the ceremonies. You know, they had the temple that was built by Solomon. This was an incredible structure. This was elaborate. It was, it's, it's, it was stunningly beautiful. And there were hundreds of priests and Levites and people, uh, you know, choristers, people singing. There were sacrifices seven days a week. I mean, this was a major religious machine going that these people back in Isaiah's time were all a part of. But here's the problem. It was all external. And their hearts were far from the Lord. And if you want to know how how far and how it got it made God feel, listen to this. This is Isaiah 1. I'm going to begin with verse 10. But this is the Lord 
talking to his people who were all part of that whole temple, all the worship, the religion of Israel at that time, of Judah. And he says, he, start, he says it this way in verse 10. Listen to the Lord, you leaders of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, people of Gomorrah. Wait a minute. Weren't Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed way back in Abraham's time, who was the first Jew, correct? So what's going on here? What's happened is they are repeating, essentially, all the sins that got Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed. So he's saying, you're just like Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, what makes you think I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord? I am sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asked you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgusts me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days for fasting, they are all sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They are a burden to me. I cannot stand them. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. For your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. These people... We're doing all this external stuff. They were going to church when they were supposed to be in church. They were doing all the ceremonies, but their hearts were about as far from the Lord as they could get. And you know, that's the part of them the Lord is concerned about. And you know what's sad? This is just like their ancestors whom Moses led out of Egypt, right? They wandered around for 40 years because they could have, that trip, literally, I think it's 12 days they should have been able to make that trip to the promised land. Instead, it was 40 years of going around in circles because of the same problem. Their hearts were not right. And now Isaiah is dealing with a rich powerful nation. They are rich and powerful at this point. They think they got it all going. And Isaiah is confronting them. The Lord is confronting them with the same thing. Their hearts are far from God. And what happened with Isaiah in Isaiah's time is they were invaded. Many of them were killed. Many of them were taken right back into slavery. And why? Because there was no other way for them to have their hearts broken open and open to God again. There was apparently no other way. 
And now we fast forward to Jesus' time, and guess what? There's a new temple. It's a beautiful, stunning, stunningly beautiful. The sacrifices are going on seven days a week. There's all these priests and Levites, all these celebrations. But now, it's the Son of God himself who has shown up. It's Jesus himself who's shown up, the Son of God. And he's there, and there are some people whose hearts are open to him. These ones, the disciples and others, and all these people who are following him. But then, the folks who are running the temple, their hearts are in a whole other place. And so, Jesus speaks in these stories that makes them scratch their head. And you know, part of it, part of it is, hopefully, it won't, they won't just be scratching their heads, but suddenly there'll be a crack in their hearts that a little bit of truth can get into and begin opening up their hard hearts because their hearts are completely hard to the Lord. You know, in Isaiah's time, the people's rebellion continued until the nation was destroyed. In Jesus' time, the people's rebellion continued until they destroyed Jesus. But that wasn't the end of the story, was it? God's grace is always, always, always greater than our sin. God's grace is always greater than our sin. Jesus, his death on the cross, accomplishes our redemption. He's brought back, he's resurrected three days, comes back from the dead three days later. And no matter how far their hearts are from him, their door is always open. It's always open. But they've got to open their hearts. I think this is the lesson for us. Let's not make, let's not make the same mistake that God's people made in Moses' time, in Isaiah's time, and in Jesus' time. Let's make sure we are loving Jesus with all our hearts and not just going through the motions like those folks were. And now you get your story. You need to know two things so that you can enjoy this story. Um, oh, I've got to stand in front of this, sorry. Um, first of all, you need to know what a shofar is. And what a shofar is, it's a big old ram's horn, usually about this long and a little bit curly like a ram's horn, but they're big. And that's what they use to blow. When they're talking about blowing, uh, blowing trumpets in, uh, in the Hebrew scriptures, they're talking about blowing the trumpets. It's a ram's horn often. So that's important to know. It's shofar, it's a big old ram's horn. And uh, secondly, you need to know what this is. 
Thank you. Say it again. There you go. Are you from Russia? Oh, there you go. You know, right. So Matryoshka. Also, we call it a babushka doll here, right? So now I'm going to come around here. Um, it looks like a little Russian grandmother. So, but. There's another one in there. And then, whoops, another one. And I'm not going to open all up too high. There's a total of five of these little babushka dolls. And um, that will begin our story. I was walking through the streets of old Jerusalem, passing tourist shop after tourist shop. If you've never been there, you have to wonder if you've entered an ancient cavern, long and narrow, with occasional gaps to let in the light from the sun, moon, and stars. I'm not a shopper, but I thought I could find an answer to my question here. Before we had left home for Israel, my wife had run into an inner-city pastor colleague and let slip that we were heading to Israel. Israel! I've always wanted to go, and I've always wanted a shofar. Could you bring me a shofar? So now I had a shofar sitting in my hotel room that I doubted could fit in my carry-on rolly bag after I had packed so brilliantly and minimally for our two-week trip. Plus, I suspected I had been price-gouged by the gift shop in Ramallah owned by our guide's third cousin. Here's where I could find an answer to my question. I chose one of the many shops filled with a rainbow of colors and all sorts of Middle Eastern knickknacks, kafayas, and other garments. A man in his 50s who looked like he could handle himself in a fight stood alone in the store, eyeing me. Do you have shofars here? Shofars? Yes. He produced a shofar. Do you like this one? How much is it? Make me an offer. No, actually, I just want to know how much it is. Okay, he said a little impatiently. $50. Now I was irritated. I had paid $65 for mine. Well, thanks, I said, and started to leave. Okay, $40, he said with more intensity. Now I'm more irritated at getting ripped off by the third cousin. No, no thanks. I already have a shofar. $30! He almost shouts as I'm nervously backing my way to the street. No, no, I, I don't. $20! He moves aggressively towards me. $10! He spits it out as if selling me a shofar is now far beneath him and would be an insult to his family. I already have a shofar. 
I just wanted to find out if I paid too much. I almost shout this last, hoping he won't hit me with his shofar and make me take it for free to spite me. Suddenly, he became still. He gazed at me. You're telling the truth. I felt my fight or flight energy draining out somewhere. Yes. How much did you pay for your shofar? $65. He burst out into a huge laugh. Oh, my friend, you were robbed. How did that happen? The price tag said $65. He shook his head and sighed. Ah, the price tag. I followed him back into his shop. He said, I'm sorry. It's been a long day and not very profitable, but it has suddenly become better. I don't meet many honest men. Are you an honest man? I try to be. Yes, he said, I can tell. And sometimes the truth gets you into trouble without your even trying. He laughed and I laughed. How did you know? He became pensive. Hmm. How did I know? Indeed, how did I know? Well, it's not important because I have a gift for you. A gift? Why? Because I do not meet many honest men, or at least many men who are trying to be honest. You are a gift to me today, so I have a gift for you. He took a ring of keys from his pocket, found the right one, and unlocked a little door behind the counter. He reached in, pulled something out, and locked the door. Here is your gift. With a minor flourish, he placed a small egg-shaped object with a flat bottom on the counter. Is that Jesus? Ah, why, sir, I perceive thou art a pilgrim. We both laughed. Jesus stood in a simple beige robe with hands gently folded and resting in front of him. He had a Mona Lisa smile. I could see what looked like a seam around Jesus's middle. Wait, is that a Jesus babushka? He is observant as well as being a seeker. We laughed again. But it's so small. How many Jesuses could be stacked up inside him? I started to pull on Jesus' upper half to open the babushka. Stop, he said, suddenly grabbing my hand. Why? He still held my hand in his. Because there is a right time to open it, and now is not the time. You say you're trying to be an honest man. Promise me you won't open it until the right time comes. But how will I know when the time will be right? I promise you this. You will know when the time is right. Now, will you promise me? It suddenly struck me that I was in a strange city, in a strange shop, with an increasingly strange man who was holding my hand and asking me to make a strange promise. 
I promise. He beamed and shook both my hands heartily. So we reached an agreement after all. We both laughed. Yes, yes, we did. I found myself not wanting to leave, but he was already rearranging things on a shelf as if he had finished one sale and was preparing for the next customer. Thanks again, I said. He gave me a little smile and wave as I started walking down the street. After a few steps, I thought, hmm, I should still buy a shofar from him and give it to someone as a gift. He had his back to me as I walked into the shop. But when he turned, it was a completely different man. May, may I speak to the other man who works here? He looked at me impatiently. There is no other man. This is my shop, and I'm the only one who works here. But I was talking to him about shofars, and he gave me a little gift. I held the thin plastic bag with my Jesus in it as proof. Now I was clearly wasting his precious time. I do not have shofars, and I do not give out merchandise for free. May I help you with something? Uh, no, uh, sorry to bother you. I looked at the shops on either side. Did I get confused? No. It was the same shop. I took Jesus out of his little bag and looked at him. At least he had not mysteriously disappeared. Well, we made it back home, shofar, Jesus, babushka, and all, and settled back into normal life. I put Jesus in my drawer. Was it to make sure someone else didn't open him up? I don't know. But I know every time I would come across him, the promise leapt to mind. It was just a series of increasingly smaller, identical Jesuses anyway, right? No surprises there. So my curiosity didn't get the better of me. The first time came on me suddenly and completely unexpectedly. I found myself embroiled in a conflict with a church elder who terrified me. I had learned to avoid conflict growing up, and now I was in a conflict with a scary guy who could get me fired and seriously damage my reputation along the way. I was living each day with dread as my background. I was pulling socks out of my drawer when suddenly Jesus was gazing into my eyes. There was no question. Now was the time. Suddenly it felt as if I was going to do something sacred, something powerful, something far beyond me. I sat down at our kitchen table and slowly twisted Jesus' top from his bottom. I pulled out the next Jesus, and he was different. He had a shepherd's staff on one side and a rod on the other, and... Wait a minute, it can't be. The second Jesus is bigger than the first. I turned them both upside down and around, but there was no mistaking. The second Jesus was bigger than the first Jesus that had held him inside. It couldn't be, but it was. And suddenly, 
As I gazed in wonder at the shepherd Jesus, larger and with a look of calm confidence on his countenance, I knew I had nothing to fear. No, I knew I better not fear because of the way this Jesus was now gazing at me. Jesus the larger, who came out of Jesus the smaller. My head was spinning, but my heart was still, calm, peaceful, settled. I placed the two Jesuses side by side. Jesus number one still had his Mona Lisa smile, but now it looked like more like a mischievous smirk. The next time was as unexpected as the first. Our family was under attack, and so were some of my colleagues, along with our congregation. The days were intense and distracting. It was hard to focus on anything for very long. I was listening to story after painful story, commiserating with colleagues and congregants. I felt storm-tossed and confused. As I opened my drawer, I heard things rattling together. There was the first Jesus, slightly dwarfed by the second. I wondered. I sat at the kitchen table once more, now with a great sense of anticipation and energy. I twisted the top off Jesus number two, and there was Jesus number three. He was holding a sword and his expression was determined and fierce. He was frightening, but not to me. He was my commander, calling me to battle, to battle for the souls and welfare of my family, my colleagues, my congregation. And no less astonishing than the first time, Jesus three was bigger than Jesus two from whom he had emerged. And so it has gone on at surprising, unexpected times. Jesus emerging with a new expression, larger than the last time, until eventually the day came when my wife and I had to pull him out together. Then our children and grandchildren had to join in. And finally the day came when we knew the new Jesus would no longer fit inside the house. So our friends came, and we all rolled him out through the French doors onto the back lawn, some holding him steady while others twisted, and then with a mighty one, two, three, Jesus came out bigger than ever with his head thrown back, laughing with joy. It's good to have a huge, happy laughing Jesus in your backyard. I think I can empathize more genuinely now with Noah. My neighbors have always known I was a little eccentric and peculiar, but they like me, so it's okay. I don't know how they'll feel when the next Jesus is set up in the park because he's taken over the city. But I'm looking forward to the day when the Jesus appears who will fill the whole earth. And I can't wait to see the expression on his face.
Friends, let us join together in our affirmation of faith.